What's up, everyone? Welcome back to The Planet today. Today is Friday, February 25th, 2022. I am your host, Matt Norton, here once again with our producer and co-host, Nick Janusa. Nick, how's it going? Matty, it is going super well over here, my man. What is going on with you? Not too much. Uh, I just wanted to wish my dad a happy belated birthday. His birthday was last Sunday. Got lunch with him. Awesome day. So yeah, shout out to my dad. Heck yeah, dude. Happy birthday, Mr. Norton. Love you. Miss you. I'm sure he will say thank you when he listens. And uh, for now, let's get into the show. Welcome to the planet today. Here on TPT, we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy with two episodes every week coming your way Monday and Friday. This show is your one-stop shop for all things environmental, whether you're just diving into a green lifestyle or you're ready for some more involved conversations about what can be some complex topics. TPT has a little bit for everyone, so we're happy to have you as a listener. Please go give the show a five-star rating on Spotify, a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, and a review on Apple Podcasts if you haven't already. Yes, and big thank you to everyone who reviewed the show, and if you leave a review, we will read it on the show. That's a promise. And before we get into things, quick minor revision from last week's show. Nick and I kind of got caught up in discussing the decision for the Biden administration to try to keep gray wolf protections as they were under the Trump administration. And we didn't really focus as much on the federal judge that reinstated those protections. So that was a good thing for sure. And I felt like we didn't really dive into it as much as we meant to. So uh, yeah, we are backtracking now. That was a good story. And we got kind of focused on the annoying part. (laughs) Hey, that's life. You know what? As millennials, Matt, we will always go towards the negative, right? (laughs) It's also because our attention spans are shot from social media. (laughs) That too. That doesn't help either. All right, let's get into our quick hits for the week. So the first one is by Maxwell Alder of Bloomberg Green, who writes, Central Park is opening a lab to study climate change. Talk about a story Taylor made for me to read. So as longtime (laughs) listeners know, I live close to Central Park and absolutely adore Central Park. I also love climate change research, which should... uh, say it'd be kind of obvious because of, well, this show. <laughs> Norman Selby is a member of the Central Park Conservancy's Board of Trustees and felt inspired by Hurricane Ida causing 3.15 inches of rain to hit Central Park over one hour. The storm flooded the Central Park boathouse and damaged around 50 of the park's trees. So he began work to establish a new research facility called the Central Park Climate Lab, which will study climate change-induced impacts on urban parks and natural forested areas. The lab will use decades of data the Central Park Conservancy has recorded about the health of its wildlife, vegetation, and soil to start the work. Luckily, the Conservancy has been doing this for about 40 years, so there is already an abundance of data available. The Conservancy has partnered with Yale School of the Environment and New York City's Natural Areas Conservancy, so the lab can help other urban parks implement both mitigation and adaptation practices. Yeah, this story is right up your alley, Matt. Like, I could see you easily waking up early on a Sunday morning and just pounding on the door for them to let you in. <laughs> like, Would lead researcher in the lab be just a complete dream job for you? 
Um, probably to be honest, although that sounds like a lot of responsibility and a lot of answering to people who, uh, think this whole climate change thing is a hoax. So maybe <laughs> like second in command is my dream job. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. The, the doer who doesn't have to answer any of the questions. <laughs> yeah. You don't have to answer to any like Facebook people. Yeah. That's honestly avoiding Facebook is my dream job. That's, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> So Selby donated the money to start turning this idea into a reality, and the Conservancy is currently fundraising to cover the lab's remaining expenses over the next three years, which is actually estimated to be between four to five million dollars. The lab's researchers are planning to make some pretty high-tech maps to help them understand parklands, and the author points out that the natural parkland and manicured parkland have different sets of needs, so studying this is going to be essential for proper management of all of the parks. The lab aims to create a platform where parks and cities around the world can share information that will help them all manage and protect their green spaces in the face of climate change. Yeah, and something the article points out is that it's pretty well understood that forests are important for mitigating climate change, but less is known about urban forests. It just hadn't really been well documented until recently. Yeah, that's something I found really interesting too. And a direct quote from the article that I found important was... Urban forested natural areas like Central Park play an important role in localized nature-based climate solutions. Forested areas account for 69% of all the carbon stored in New York City, which offsets the emissions of approximately 4,500 cars every year. And they make up a quarter of the city's total tree canopy. So I'm a big urban forest guy. I think a lot of their value is tough to measure, but when you talk about shade cover reducing temperatures, trees storing carbon emissions, and wildlife habitats, it's easy to see their importance. When you add on just the feeling of being in green space when you spend most of your days surrounded by sidewalks and skyscrapers, it's hard to measure just how important parks like Central Park really are. Yeah, 100%, dude. Like, it, it gives life to the area around it. You know, like if it's just all buildings and concrete and cement, well, it's not going to be that interesting. But when you introduce trees and, you know, different bushes, shrubs, whatever it is, flowers, it just makes it all the more welcoming. You know, it's, it's way more uh, inviting. Yeah. I think vegetation in a city, it, it's important because it brings out all parts of you. Like there are days where I go outside and, you know, let's say it's raining the day before. Or I just hadn't really had enough time to get outside as much as I'd like to. And you see a couple flowers on the sidewalk, you see some trees that are in bloom. You're like, this is awesome. And then May hits and, you know, the pollen count gets high and you look at those same trees and you're like, now I have a reason to be annoyed. <laughs> and then July hits and you're just happy to be under some tree because it's giving you shade. So they, they just amplify all parts of us. Exactly. I, I love that. Yeah, totally agree. And if you're looking to learn a little bit more about urban forestry and, and all that, definitely check out our episode we did with Ryan Burns, who's not only an arborist, but he's also our bud. So go check it out. That is 100% true. I can confirm he is our bud and an arborist. <laughs> all right, let's move on to the next one, which is from The Hill, where Joseph Guzman writes, First in the Nation project will cover canals with solar panel canopies. California's San Joaquin Valley will see solar panel canopies installed over sections of an existing canal starting this fall, which researchers say can both save water and produce renewable energy. The project has been called Project Nexus and will cover several open water segments with solar panels to test whether it will decrease water evaporation, increase water quality by reducing vegetative growth, and generate renewable energy. 
So this has pretty big implications in that it's going to produce more carbon-free electricity in a state that wants to go carbon-free by 2030. But also, California wants to conserve water in a region that's known for its water shortages. Nick, as someone who lived in California for a couple of years, I feel like you know about the water situation there much better than I do. So can you give us some insight into what that water shortage actually feels like to the people there? You know, Matt, it honestly was not something that I noticed in my everyday life. I knew in moving there that it, it doesn't really rain, you know, in Southern California. There wasn't going to be, you know, crazy rainstorms every week or anything like that. Mainly sunny, it barely rains. But we were never under any water use limits or anything like that. And that's not to say that it doesn't exist because it definitely does, obviously. But uh, I do know that the drought got worse the year after I had left. So so you got kind of lucky with the timing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It definitely got lucky with the timing. And I do know it got worse the year after I had left. So 2021, I heard, was, was pretty bad. Gotcha. Okay, so moving on. This project is going to cost about $20 million, and it's being funded by the state of California. The project stemmed from a study published by the University of California, Merced, and UC Santa Cruz, which found covering 4,000 miles of the state's water canals could cut water evaporation by as much as 82% and save about 63 billion gallons of water annually, which is about the same amount required to irrigate 50,000 acres of farmland, according to the author. If covering canals with solar panels proves to be as effective as the initial studies show, then covering canals with solar panels could generate about one-sixth of the state's energy capacity. That equates to about half of the new capacity needed to meet California's greenhouse gas reduction goals by 2030. So like I said before, this has pretty big implications if the pilot project is successful. Yeah, I mean, you think about saving 63 billion gallons of water annually and that being able to irrigate 50,000 acres of farmland. Well, think about how much food that is, you know, put that into terms of food and well, now we have a lot more of it, you know, like, yeah. And honestly, just any sort of dual use. I mean, we talked about agrivoltaics on the show one time, which is farmland mixed with renewable energy. This is another thing where, you know, you're doubling the output of that space. So not only is it a canal providing water to, you know, whatever the other sides of the canal are, now you're producing energy. So whatever that value is, you're essentially doubling it or, or more. Yeah, exactly. And the article ends by saying there are challenges for the project, including the cost of solar infrastructure relative to energy output, the need to access canals for maintenance, and delivery of electricity to a useful load. Yeah, so let's hope this goes well and that they're able to expand upon a successful pilot program. Yeah, for sure. All right, our next quick hit is titled Illinois to shut all fossil fuel plants by 2045 and invest $580 million a year in renewables. Update by Electrex Michelle Lewis. We first covered this story in our September 17th episode. Yeah, that one also featured an interview with my friend Kristen Pruitt, so go check it out if you want. She worked at Yellowstone National Park for a little bit. Wow, back when episodes had interviews and quick hits, crazy. <laughs> As a refresher for anyone who doesn't remember this story, five months ago, Illinois passed the Bipartisan Climate and Equitable Jobs Act by a margin of 83 to 33. The act also says that all fossil fuel plants in Illinois will have to be shut down by 2045. The most aggressive targets in the bill were set for the dirtiest of coal plants and plants in environmental justice communities. So, five months later, just how well is this act impacting the state? 
Solar companies have installed more than 2,000 rooftop and community solar projects in the state since then, which is enough to power 30,000 homes. Illinois businesses are expected to complete over 8,400 rooftop and community projects by the end of the year. From a jobs perspective, solar jobs are expected to increase by 47% by the end of the year, so business is booming. Nick pointed out that the bill was bipartisan earlier because renewable energy is popular across the political spectrum, and it's doing great things for both the environment and for job creation. Yeah, I mean, this is great. Like, it already seems like Illinois is off to a, a really great start, and hopefully they can continue this. Yeah, I mean, you look at what they've done, and it's not even been half a year yet, so it's looking like it's going to be a good year and hopefully keep that momentum rolling forward into uh, 2023, 2024, and start to phase out more of these fossil fuel plants. Yeah, and who knows, we could even, you know, push that 2045 metric down to maybe 2040 if, if things go well, so who knows. As we mentioned, the bill aims to address environmental justice, so the article points out that clean energy businesses reported that they have already expanded work on diversity, equity, and inclusion through three methods. Number one, by recruiting from solar job training programs. Number two, creating internal committees focused on diversity, and number three, hiring consultants and recruiters to guide their diversity efforts. So it sounds like they're off to a pretty great start and let's hope they can keep this up moving forward. Yeah, for sure. All right, Maddie, what do you say? We take a break right now. Count me in. When we get back, some more quick hits. The Planet Today is brought to you by Vala Alta. Vala Alta's Everyday Handkerchief is a high-performance daily-use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact. Made in the United States from sustainably sourced Irish linen, capturing the material's historic craftsmanship and natural antimicrobial properties, handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. Ideal for functional use in all settings, from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. Build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valaalta.co and save 15% with code TPT at checkout. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A.co and code TPT. the planet today folks and next up rising costs of climate change threaten to make skiing a less diverse even more exclusive sport by brian p mccullough and lance warwick of the conversation so this one's pretty topical as the authors point out with the winter olympics just wrapping up you know we saw skiers competing on almost entirely artificial snow during this year's winter games so the authors got to thinking about how climate change will impact skiing and skiing communities Ski areas are becoming more reliant on artificial snowmakers to keep their slopes open as the planet warms. Warmer temperatures mean more days of rain instead of snow and shorter snow seasons. That combination is going to reduce their revenues and raise their costs of operation. As you probably guessed, increased costs of operation means increased costs of lift tickets and ski resort prices, which means skiing and snowboarding, which are already expensive sports, risk becoming more exclusive and less diverse. 
The authors looked into intersectional sustainability for the sports, which means they looked at how inclusive and environmentally sustainable they really are. They found that intersectional sustainability for ski resorts requires them to acknowledge that climate change may result in the sports becoming less diverse. So they need to be proactive about preventing that. Yeah. And they point out that artificial snow is expensive and they actually highlight Holiday Valley in Ellicottville, New York, where they invested 13 million in snowmaking equipment over the past 40 years. Add in the cost of energy, labor, and piping in the thousands of gallons of water per minute that snowmaking machines require, and those costs add up pretty quick. Yeah, and they add that snowmaking machines are becoming more efficient, but the overall cost of them is still significant. Yeah, I mean, this will probably be the future one day. Like, the ski resorts that have superior snowmaking equipment will probably be the ones that will survive. Yeah, that's a really good point. And what's wild to me is that under the best case scenario, if the world achieves its Paris Agreement goals, Ontario's Blue Mountain ski season is likely to shorten by 8%, and its snowmaking efforts would have to double by 2050. The window for ideal snowmaking would reduce by 22%, which also means the snowmakers would have to run in less efficient conditions, which makes it more expensive. It's this huge domino effect that ultimately could lead to smaller resorts shutting down and larger resorts becoming more expensive, like you mentioned. Yeah, and skiing has kind of always been this exclusionary sport. Like, lift tickets are expensive, you know, renting a snowboard is expensive, renting skis, whatever. And it's just like, if you don't have the money to to do that, well, you're not going to get on the mountain. It's as simple as that. And then like, okay, well, you want to buy your own stuff? That's still expensive anyway. So it's always been this exclusionary thing. And honestly, not something I've ever really done, to be honest. So Yeah, I I feel like I'm missing out. I would love to try skiing, but the the barrier for entry was always a lot growing up. And now, I don't know, I I feel like I missed out. But maybe maybe next winter, we'll go on a little ski trip. (laughs) The TPT ski trip. (laughs) It's our next, next segment. We'll see you in Vermont. So along with being very expensive, skiing and snowboarding are very white sports, which Snow Sports Industries of America documented in 2020. 69% of visitors who described themselves as skiers and 61% of visitors who said they snowboard were white. Another survey by the National Ski Area Association actually found that 87.5% of visits to ski resorts in the U.S. were by people identifying as white, and only 1.5% of visitors were black or African-American. So whatever metric you use, skiing and snowboarding are mostly white sports. So you have this racial gap, and then you have the wealth gap that's associated with the sports, where 63% of skiers and 55% of snowboarders had an income over $75,000, which is almost double the median earnings of your average American. That's just insane to me. Like, wow. And some resorts have started community initiatives to make the sports more accessible, by awarding scholarships to help people attend their skiing and snowboarding camps, but many corporate-owned ski resorts have a lack of diversity efforts. The authors point out that this suggests if the costs keep rising due to climate adaptation, many people who would like to ski or snowboard will be unable to. Yeah, and the article closes with three ways that diversity can be improved on ski resorts. So number one, engaging and partnering with community organizations that focus on diversity and inclusion. And this is actually what Powder is doing, and that's P-O-W-D-R, if you want to look it up. Um, Nick mentioned earlier the scholarships for disadvantaged youth, and that's something that their organization is working on right now. This will allow more people to get their start with the sports, which makes them more likely to continue them. 
Number two, ski resorts can engage directly with nonprofits that work to develop and support athletes of color in winter sports. And number three, resort corporations can improve their connections with diverse communities by increasing diversity of their own leadership. I am personally not going to hold my breath for that one, but this would definitely be a step in the right direction, especially if leadership boards create a position centered around increasing diversity and inclusivity on the mountains. Yeah. And I also feel like this is just a topic that has not been talked about really. And it's just time that we, we start doing better, you know, really, I guess the mountains have to do better in creating that diversity on the mountain. Yeah. It's something that, you know, like we mentioned, we are not skiers, we are not snowboarders. So I don't know if this is something where maybe we just haven't noticed it because we're not out there. But then I think back to something like, uh, I read this article maybe two years ago again, basically just talking about how hiking is a very white activity and you need to increase diversity on hiking trails. And someone like me who goes hiking fairly often, it took me reading that to actually kind of notice. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I think we can all, we can all do better about making the outdoors more for everyone. Absolutely. Totally agree. All right. And our last one of the week is from the Washington Post, and it's titled Student Climate Activists from Yale, Stanford, Princeton, MIT, and Vanderbilt File Legal Complaints to Compel Divestment by Susan Sverluga. The root issue here isn't necessarily a new story since students have been trying to get their universities to divest from fossil fuels for years, but a new coalition of student groups working with the Climate Defense Project has begun to ramp up their efforts. The groups have moved on from universities investing in fossil fuels are immoral to what universities are doing might be illegal. Official complaints were filed last week to the state attorney general for each university Nick mentioned in the headline and request the schools be investigated for potentially violating state laws related to investment by nonprofit institutions. The complaint argues that the Uniform Prudent Management of Institutional Funds Act requires universities to ensure their resources are put to socially beneficial ends. The argument here is that putting money into fossil fuel companies is not socially beneficial, which would then make these investments illegal. The author adds that the complaints also argue that the investments may no longer even make financial sense, with the complaints saying, quote, oil and gas stocks have greatly underperformed other investments over the last 10 years. Wow, so not only are they breaking the law, but they're just doing a job of it too. How about that? <laughs> be a better criminal. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't really surprise me for some reason, like all these expensive schools just being shady and just doing whatever they want with their money. It sounds like exactly par for the course from my perspective. Yeah. Not really surprised either. Uh, endowment money seems to be, uh, let's just make more money for the people who, who invest. <laughs> yeah, exactly. In the fall, Harvard announced it would end all investments in fossil fuels. And a lot of people, myself included, Hope this would be the first domino to fall. Last year, Yale announced it would start divesting, but students are looking for a total divestment from all fossil fuels. Molly Weiner, an organizer with Yale Endowment Justice Coalition, said, I'm here studying environmental policy, yet my school is contributing to the climate crisis. It's really awful. And I totally get her frustration. I listened to Yale's Climate Connections every Monday through Friday, and I attended the Yale Sustainability Leadership Forum in 2018. So look, they're one of the leaders in climate research. I have a bit of a, a personal 
affinity towards them. And it sucks to see the university as a whole investing in fossil fuels still. And Yale isn't even alone in this. It's just one of the schools. And this is just one of the quotes from this article. Yeah, it's like a, it's like a company having like a mission for, you know, let's just say like feeding the world. And then they like literally do the opposite. Like they take food from the hungry. <laughs> That's literally what this is. I, I don't understand it. How could you have, you know, be on the, the literally the, the cutting edge of research in climate change and then also just be... Eh, you know what? We're just going to put some money into fossil fuels. It's the reverse Robin Hood. Like you steal from the poor and give to the rich. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's unreal. So many universities are working on internally combating climate change by researching how to lower their own emissions. And one of the examples given is Stanford completing a year long review of fossil fuel investments in 2020. And the school then committed to accelerating its transition to net zero. Whether or not these complaints pan out in court is to be determined. And really, it can go either way. Ted Hamilton, co-founder of the Climate Defense Project, says that a lot of these universities have already come to these conclusions, and the complaints are honestly just common sense. Stephen Bloom of the American Council on Education says the complaints are unlikely to succeed because it seems unlikely that the schools have acted illegally. And one final thing from the article I wanted to point out is that investment in fossil fuels might be profitable for now, but that's trending downward. Tom Sanzillo is the director of financial analysis for the Institute of Energy Economics and Financial Analysis. And he says, in the 1980s, the fossil fuel sector of the economy was 28% of the stock market. Now it's three. So even if it's not illegal, divesting from fossil fuels seems to be a smart long-term financial decision for these schools. So I guess we'll see. Yeah, I mean, these schools probably would be better served if they put their money elsewhere anyway. So we'll see. And that'll do it for today's episode of TPT. Nick and I will be back on Monday to talk about bald eagles. Yeah. Bald eagles, baby. America's animal. Yeah. Super interesting episode coming up. So tune in. In the meantime, please rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and leave a review for the show on Apple. The Planet Today is written and hosted by me, Matt Norton. You can follow me on Twitter at Matt Norton. We are co-hosted and produced by the incredibly talented Nick Janusa, who also does the music for every single show. That's right. All four songs of today's episode <laughs> and every episode, Nick Janusa Originals. Nick, where can our listeners hear more from you? You can hear more from me at soundcloud.com slash Capen. That is B-U-D-L-Y-N-C-A-P-E. Go check me out, folks. You can keep up with the entire TPT team on TikTok, Twitter, and Instagram at Planet Today Pod or email us at planettodaypod at gmail.com. Make sure to follow our socials for an exclusive quick hit every week that we won't be talking about on the podcast. Our logo is made by Kaylee Veets. Have a great weekend, everyone, and we will catch you right here on Monday. Peace.